Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 142 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. Dude, you're doing everything live. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there's there's, no, there's there, no magic here. You ain't going back through and editing. Everything I do, I go, I don't want it to take extra time. So yeah. people are like, do you edit your episodes? I'm like, no. Oh, yeah, it's like raw and real. I go, no, I don't want to spend extra time after the thing's yeah. done. You export it, post it, done. Yeah. Because that's really what this is. And yeah. I'm excited to have you back in. Yeah, it's been After a, while, a few years. Because I was years. looking back to our last episode. I should say I'm here with Will Fortsman, owner of Cafe Steam in okay. Rochester, Minnesota, and now Colorway Coffee Roasters, which has been a new, let's say project, a new business since we last talked. Because the last time we talked was right when the COVID shit was hitting the fan. Yeah. And we were literally talking about like, what is, we were texting back and forth and you were the only person I was texting at the time that had a grasp on all the different regulations that were happening. I was like, will you please come in yeah. and talk about this? Cause I feel like this would be great for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. And even then looking back, you're talking to business owners who weren't um, capitalizing on the available funding. That was like, just all, all you needed to do was, you know, stretch your hand out and, and be able to be there to receive it. And you're like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't get PPP, and I'm like, how did you miss out on that? It, it just, was the Wild West. It was the absolute Wild West. And even, like, looking back, at, we were spending money hand over fist to try to meet the requirements to – but I could have made that cash last for three years. Yeah. And it was just – but even still, uh, it, it's – the wacky things that we did at that time, I'm <laughs> looking back, it's just uh, absurd. But it was an important time for, you know, us to, like – Obviously, we were following the rules and everything and <laughs> learning things ourselves, so. <laughs> even if it was the Wild West. Yeah, walking around with our, you know, handkerchiefs around our faces going like, all right, we're doing the yeah. thing. Like, <laughs> this is what this is now. And, you know, God, it's weird to think back with that time. Even just like after our episode, I was like, oh, I need to apply for this PPP like, uh -huh. immediately. I, I wasn't even sure if I qualified, but there were people that was like, dude, if you don't do it in the next two days, mm -hmm. you're not going to get it. That was it. it. You had like a window that was absurdly was, short. And then... We got awarded the PPP money, and I'll tell this story quickly, and then I want to get back to what you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got the money from the PPP loan, and it was twice what we had requested. Okay. And so I reached out to the bank that uh. had awarded us the PPP loan, and yeah. I go, I know this might be a weird call, but I got twice the amount I was expecting. Uh-huh. I just want to make sure that is this actually our money to use? Will this be forgiven? Because I don't want to spend it uh -huh. and then owe you back this money, you know, a year from now. And she goes, well, I'm not really sure why you got to award this money. And I go, but so is uh -huh. it ours? And she goes, and it got to the point where she just goes, look, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Just take the money yep. and don't ask questions yep. about it. And so basically That's I set aside the half that I wasn't expecting that's I go, a good move. I go, I'm not going to spend this. Yeah. I'm going to wait like five or six months. And yeah. then sure enough, a few months later, they're like, hey, remember that extra oh, money we gave you? thank God. That's actually not yours. We need that back. Oh. So but like, that's an example during the time. I can, I can imagine that call being like, hey, we're going to pretend this call never happened. From the banker's side of just being like, hey, we're, we're going to pretend was, this never happened. It, it was funny. It was the professionalism. Like, yeah. hi, how can I help you today? Oh, oh what, you know, let me look. I, and then eventually, She wasn't typing anything. And then she eventually was <laughs> it just cracked. Eventually. Yeah. I, I don't know. And you're like, yeah. oh, the, here's the human I'm talking to. Yeah. And then seeing the articles now coming out about where PPP money went, it was like, oh. Not good places. Okay. Not, I, was, I was on, yeah, if you, if you were doing so fraudulently, you were probably one of the least, you know, um, 
causes of, of issues for the entire program because there were people who were just, you know, applying for it, didn't have businesses, just opened up an LLC and then fraudulently, you know, all kinds of that stuff that were working through the cracks. But yeah, it was, um, it was a very interesting time, but it was, I'm glad that it was available. It's important that it, but you can see that there are kind of tailing problems associated with it now. Yeah. Years later. But that's where, that's when yeah. we last spoke was during that time. So a <laughs> radically different mindset. And uh, I think you and I have always connected and kind of, I mean, just even before we started recording, I was like, shit, we should be recording right now. Cause like, mm -hmm. this is, it, I think we got half the podcast over with right before we yeah, started recording. <laughs> like the strategy of specialty coffee and yeah. kind of looking at what specialty coffee is and not just like staying hyper focused on like what it has been, but where is specialty coffee going? And I think the way that you've built your businesses is really reflective of what I've said. Mm of I think this is a great strategy of I got the advice early on that if you're going to start a coffee business, either start a coffee roaster first mm -hmm. or start a cafe first, whichever one you're more passionate about. And I kind of see that. I don't know if this is was your intention the, the whole time with Colorway Coffee, but you uh, built up Cafe Steam now to three locations. Mm -hmm. And then late 2021, you launched Colorway Coffee. So I'm really curious about the thought process of that because – I'm going to be honest, as a coffee roaster, it is one of those worries you have that you're like, oh, if I have a customer that's growing rapidly, at what point are they just going to say, you know what, I'm going to start roasting my own coffee. Yeah. And I'm very curious about the thought process on your end that went into it and the decisions you made to say, hey, now is the time that we're going to launch our own uh, coffee roasting business that's going to not only service our cafes, but it's also going to uh, serve wholesale and retail and launch mm -hmm. into that. Yeah, so I think um, those conversa conversations started about a year and a half after we that initially opened the coffee shop. And a lot of it is a financial discussion of like, okay, we see that there's a margin associated with purchasing coffee from um, a, a roastery that is active. And in order to you know make the business more whole, it's appropriate to vertically integrate or mm. to add services that you're able to control not only the means of production, but also widen that margin a little bit. So, you know, I, since then, of course, the sea market prices skyrocketed and coffee, <laughs> green coffee is far more expensive. So I think that margin that we were hoping to save at that time is now incorporated into the green coffee price. Yeah. But even if you were buying from a roaster, those prices would have spiked yeah, exactly. at the exact same exactly. percentage. Yeah. yeah. And, and, what was important was to be able to have a model that would be able to sustain the roastery itself. So uh, I think one of the um, issues when you're kind of uh, filling two buckets is that you're not going to be able to support the other business while you're doing it. If you jump into it, something else and the coffee shop's still too small to be able to support the roastery. Now you've got two sinking, you know, ships yeah. that are taking on water that, that it makes it very difficult. So getting the coffee shop to a point where you're like, okay, we're doing, X number of pounds per month. We know that if we roast that amount per month, we'll be able to pay rent and payroll associated with it. And then anything on top of that with wholesale customers or anything like that um, will only make the business more sustainable. Um, and so it, it made sense financially. It also made sense because my passion is in, is in coffee. And I, I really started getting into the weeds and learning coffee and um, understanding it as much as I could. Uh, but that doesn't prepare you for what roasting actually is. And, and I say actually is there's a lot of mysticism about how much control a roaster has over the flavor profile of a coffee. You do have a, a considerable amount of control um, over the flavor profile of a coffee, but a lot of it comes down to that agronomy. It comes down to that processing and then how it's being prepared. There's so many inter, you know um, variables that go into making just an okay cup of coffee and getting from point A to point B, it can be messed up you know at, at any point. So 
a lot of learning um, to be done in context of actually roasting, uh, but it was important for us to be able to have the three locations so that we could um, not set them aside in any way because I still play a very active role in each of, each of our stores, um, and but be able to focus your time and energy on on that different company. And over the last, um, you know, two years of, of running it, you know, I still want to be able to dedicate more time to the to the roasting arm of it, building those wholesale clients and building those wholesale customers so that that is kind of its own thing. Because right now it, it's very much paired with uh, the coffee shops, even mm-hmm. though we do have, you know, coffee in grocery stores and um, are expanding in, in, in other coffee shops and um, are doing online retail sales and, and everything like that. But I still want that to be a bigger thing than it is currently, obviously. And when you're looking at the future saying at some point we're going to start our own roasting business and we're going to be roasting our own coffee, how did you determine the threshold? Did you have the idea that three locations is going to be our, once we're at three, all of a sudden it's financially viable or was it more so you need to open the location first, figure out the volume you're doing, and then it's kind of a, a decision after the fact? Because three does seem to be kind of this between three and four locations depending on how high volume they are between three and four cafes seems to be the threshold where you can actually financially support a roasting business all on its own Mm -hmm. even if you're not able to grow a wholesale business i'd say it's a little column a column b because we had started doing some build out of a warehouse space very early on when we had only one location we thought well if we can make it small enough then it will be able to support one of uh, the bits of advice that I received, though, was never start too small with roasting because you're going to grow a lot faster than you think you will, and you won't be able to meet that demand. And we kind of had that in the back of our heads the whole time. Like, okay, well, it, you know, everybody's telling us to go bigger because you're going to eventually hit your capacity. And I totally understand what they mean by that now because if we had started as small as we wanted to, we would have been, you know, uh, um, totally overwhelmed uh, by the amount of business that we were able to do. So starting at that one location, getting far enough into it to realize that it wasn't a financially sound decision. We, we eventually backed out of it without spending too much money exploring that option. We still you know, lost money um, in just like holding down a space, getting things built, as, as businesses do. They're, they're, it's, it's best to get a little bit into it than too far into it and realize you can't back out. Um, that, but once we- That is a, I see, a, a, I've, I've been guilty of this myself. Yeah. Once you're in an idea that, the theory of sunken costs that you're like, well, we've already spent this much. We better see it through. And that yep. dude, that advice. So like Wesley Andrews was roasting on like a three kilo machine. Yeah. And when you talk about that, Dang. you go, oh, three kilo. You're like, that's a five pound bag of coffee. Yes. So for Dang. their own cafe, you're talking, I don't know, like a hundred roasts to support for a couple weeks of coffee. Yeah. And so yeah. now you're talking like three, four, five days of full. And the window for opportunity for like new wholesale customers, especially Mm. it's pretty far and few between that. An ideal customer comes along that they're like, we want really great coffee. Mm. It's someone you want serving your coffee. Mm. They're open to working with you. And then you're like, but if they sell a hundred pounds of coffee a week, we can't, you can't put a new roaster in, in two weeks. Exactly. (laughs) And so that advice, and like, that's why we roast in the shared facility. That was Mm. one of the major benefits was they have three sizes of roasters. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, we're starting on the smallest one, mm. but you get to that point. And, and so you back out of this warehouse, say, okay, this is not a smart decision. Despite how much we've cost, we're going to back out of this. You're at one location. At that point, when you made that decision to back out of the warehouse, did you kind of decide, you know, 
let's just not do roasting or it said let's table this take that advice to start bigger and go from there it was table it yeah we i think the actual final nail in the coffin was we were quoting out for roasters quoting out for catalytic converters because we wanted to do it ethically and and um we were uh working with an, a mechanical engineer for the hvac and they came back to us with a quote that was four times higher than what they'd initially quoted for some reason and and I, I can I have this number of like type A ducting being nine hundred dollars per linear foot and we had to have for some reason 30, 30 feet of linear ducting so you're just you're running the numbers the eventual quote was like thirty two thousand dollars which at that phase we were like wait a minute and we were going through you know a loan process to be able to expand the business and uh, we, we just kind of ran the numbers I'm like wait a minute we're not going to be able to do that now you can kind of have some some optimism of like, okay, well, the business is going to grow. Eventually, we'll be able to support it. But how much are you going to have to be, you know, in the red before you're eventually able to sustain it? And so he said, well, let, let's operate because we were still a very new business. And when your new business is very successful, sometimes that can build some false optimism. And, and you're just like, <laughs> we're doing so great year two. We're going to be doing great year seven. Yep. I've set <laughs> some money on fire with that mindset. <laughs> exactly. But and, and it's op- – we operated very conservatively there and and it worked out in our favor because i immediately after was um you know we we built out a second location and then COVID hit now we uh, started in 2015 so we had several years before COVID became a factor but i think had we been saddled with that same debt in COVID, it would not it would be a different story um so what eventually ended up happening is we tabled everything you know, operated pretty lean with three locations because now you're you're um, uh, buying from a, a roastery, and so you incorporated that into all of your margin. And um, COVID comes, get a phone call on a random, random day from a roaster in town who said, "Hey, I'm, you know, we're we're trying to get rid of some equipment. Wondered if you might be uh, interested." This man, I'd never spoken with it before in my entire life, and. Um, I was like, sure, what are you hoping to get rid of? And he says, well, we've got a couple of grinders and, you know, some some brewing equipment. I was like, sure, I'll, I'll stop out to look at it. And it's in this roasting facility. And I'm looking around and I'm like, so what's what's the plan here? Well, we're going to part out the roaster. We're going to, you know, break it up. You know, obviously it's uh, it, it's kind of an older machine, so we're not sure what the market, you know, looks like for for used equipment. We're going to, you know, sell all of, all of this brewing equipment and such. And I was like, oh, what do you want for the whole thing? Of course... <laughs> Mid COVID, we're cash strapped. I, you know, we, we, we're we're not going to be making huge financial decisions now. And he's like, "Wow, I hadn't really thought about that." Well, give me give me a couple of days. Sends me a text the next day, and it's it's a number that I'm like, "Holy smokes, we could do that. We could do that tomorrow." And um, I went to my partners, and this is something that we've been ideating for years now, and and we all kind of came to the agreement: we want this yesterday, right? Mm. So let's let's do this. Let's move fast on it, and um, we were able to do so, and um, it was something that just kind of fell into our lap. And I was so appreciative to be able to have that opportunity to come in and, and look at that space and the former business owner for being able to take on that risk. And it was not his entire business. He worked at IBM, and this was kind of the side thing. And um, But they'd really kind of taken on – it was a very, very small space, um, and – there was also, um, the, there was a travel agent. It was operating out of the back of a travel agency. Mm-hmm. So like one break, the break room, they'd converted into a roastery. So it had the sinks. It had, you know, all the electrical supply, et cetera. 
gas lines put in, but the uh, travel agency had just didn't have a break room for a while. COVID happens, that travel agency doesn't have, you know, is, isn't able to, um, or, or was making some more conservative decisions. They set, decide to consolidate half of the wing of that travel agency. So now they've got this office space, three offices, big room for potential green coffee storage. And landlord says, well, what would you think about taking on the rest? It was like, it was like in, in a period of a week, we had a fully built out roastery that just had kind of fallen into our laps. And, and <laughs> it was just happenstance. It was like all of the karmic energy of going through the stress of um, <laughs> trying to build out that first space and realizing it wasn't a, a good option has now come full circle. And hopefully they like, like, well, we'd be stupid to not take this opportunity and, and do it even if we were operating very conservatively because we knew we would be able to save money. Well, and that's the, the classic example of just, uh, oh, you, you need so much luck in business for things to work. And you go, that is true. Yeah. That is a very lucky situation. Yeah. But if you hadn't already been thinking ahead of, do we want to roast in the first place? Yeah. What does that look like? What size roaster would we need? How much would this cost? And kind of Having all of those things in place that when someone calls, if he were to text and say, are you just looking for this? You see the roaster. You probably wouldn't even think to ask if you hadn't mm -hmm. thought about it. Or even if you started thinking about it, it would be in that moment and you'd probably be scrambling to make a decision. And then you have the space and you're like, now what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. Versus having all these things in place, having an idea, and then fortunately having backed out of the previous decision yeah. that how pissed would you be if you knew it wasn't a great financial decision, but you go, oh, I want to roast so bad. It's like the emotion in decisions and making that decision. Oh no, but we, I want to roast so bad. We're going to do this. Yeah. And then figuring out that that existed and that he'd be willing to sell yeah. that. Yeah. You'd After be like, fact. right place, right time also requires somebody to know what the right place. Exactly. Right time is. <laughs> uh, recognizing an opportunity and actually striking while the iron is hot. It's, it's not as you know easy as you might think because there's still an incredible amount of risk because let's say you jump on that roaster, you're roasting and it's shit coffee. You know, the, that reflects on the rest of the portfolio. Yeah. Eventually the business starts to stagger and, 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 you know, you're not able to sustain it. And then it's a domino effect of things not going well. So you get this space mm. immediately. There's this office space that opens up. So you have this full scale roastery that mm -hmm. fits your needs. What are your next steps after that? Cause that seemed to happen super quick, mm -hmm. but you have all these pretty, you know, you have these rough plans in place of here's how we would do it. Mm -hmm. Did you have something in pl place like already planned out or how much planning did it require after the fact that you've now got the space available? That's where the, a lot of the learning on the fly came. I knew I had a tough conversation coming up with our roastery who uh, we had worked with so, for so closely on a number of our build outs, you know, equipment provisions. We had a lot of equipment that was on lease from them that we needed to resolve. Um, and, uh, so the first thing that I did once I had kind of a horizon of like, okay, we need to be roasting autonomously in uh, two months. And I, I had put that as kind of an ambiguous timeline because I knew that sales were going to be going up after winter um, and we would be able to more effectively sustain it under that, um, that revenue than we would have during the winter. So started roasting piecemeal, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds writing out kind of a, a training model of like, okay, if I'm going to have somebody come in and do this, um, I want to be able to teach them what I know. That's kind of, that's what I like to do is I like to get in there, figure it out, write, write something up so that you can train somebody else to do it and, and be able to then support them um, throughout that process. So knew I had a conversation coming up, went up to the cities and uh, met with Alan at Roastery 7, who's a great partner with us for many years. And I was like, hey, 
I, I knew I wanted to have this conversation in person. Um, it's not something that I want to just make, make a phone call and be like, Hey man, we're going on our own. But much to your, what you mentioned is like, he did a lot to stoke that passion in me for coffee. So now you've effectively a mentor that you're then kind of going like, I'm, I'm going to go out on my own. You have to expect it in some capacity, right? Where you can recognize that a business is growing very quickly. Um, eventually they're going to want to roast for themselves because you can see somebody's really passionate about it. And uh, it was a tough conversation, but he, he took it really well. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm sure we've had it happen before and it's, you know, not, not going to be the last time that it happens. And um, we, I gave him a transitional period of like, hey, we're still going to be purchasing from you for the next two months. Um, so that gives us a little bit of lead time because it's never going to be a hard transition where Tuesday, you're, you know, mm -hmm. tomorrow you're going to be roasting for yourself. So, and that allowed us a lot of um, runway to then say, okay, by this point, I need to be roasting two, 260 pounds a week or something like that. And um, got to that point where I was like, okay, like we can do this. Well, then we make that transition. I'm in the roastery three, four days a week, roast, you know, roast, roasting coffee. And I realized I get to a point, I'm like, wait a minute. I can't do this by myself because mm. I'm trying to run the locations and roasting in the mornings for a little bit of time going out and, and managing each of the locations or supporting, supporting managers at each, each store. And I'm like, Holy smokes, this is getting a little overwhelming out of the blue, get an email from our, our current head roaster, Austin power. And which is his real name. <laughs> and <laughs> I get this email. And I'm thinking, Oh, well, it's a joke. It's, this is some scam. Like, this guy, got this odd guy, Austin powers <laughs> emailing me says, Hey, I, I heard you're, you know, getting into roasting. Want to know if I can, you know, be there, you know, in any capacity to support it. He's coming out of, um, North Carolina, uh, and mo moved to Minnesota and was, um, look, had just happened to be looking for a roasting gig at the time. And we met and I, we talked about coffee for hours and hours and hours. And I realized like, this is the perfect fit. So I go back run the numbers and realize we wouldn't be able to support it at that time. So just having somebody on roaster for two to three days, two to three days a week, you know, part-time, somebody who's roasting wants to be able to support themselves. Went back to him and I was like, listen, man, you know, I, I think you'd be a great fit. This would be, you know, an awesome opportunity for us, but we're just not in a place for it to be ready. He says, okay, call me when, call me when, you know, when you're ready. Guy's been roasting for 10 years and just comes out of nowhere. And I'm in the back of my mind, every time I'm roasting, I'm thinking, God, this would be so much better if we would had somebody to have this conversation with what we're doing with profiles, doing all this stuff. Um, and finally it gets to a point where we're, you know, roasting enough and we're ready to make a call again, right at that razor's edge, that tipping point of like, okay, you can make this decision. It can go ba badly or it, or it can go well. Um, and offered him the opportunity to, to roast, took it. The catch being he is also a barista. So he can pull time mm. on bar and work with the coffee. And, and that's awesome because it gets him, you know, in the roastery and uh, supplements any, any additional it with um, time on bar. And he's fantastic. I mean, I, I truly couldn't do it without Austin. Yeah. Um, and it's, you seem to look at financially impactful decisions in, because when you look at these two decisions, when you're looking at this, you know, $32,000 quote for venting yeah. that you go, okay, so are we willing to take on debt to open this facility? Well, this facility could 
increase our margins. Mm -hmm. It could expand our operations. We could start selling wholesale coffee. That's an additional revenue stream. These are all hypotheticals of yes. here's what we could do. Yeah. And you decide that's not worth it. Because it's like once you've spent the $32,000 on that vent, that's mm -hmm. not an asset. That is... You can't sell, you you, can't sell drywall. You're not selling venting to yeah. someone. And so you look at that and go, this is a form of debt. I'm not taking that on. It's the value add is all hypothetical at this point versus when it comes to people and you have this opportunity of someone who's been roasting for 10 years and mm -hmm. you go, is this going to stretch us financially? Definitely mm -hmm. for the size we're at. Yeah. And you, you, you're looking at where you would need to be. And again, you're looking at a hypothetical situation, but that vent isn't going to help you sell more coffee. It's not going to increase the quality the uh, mm -hmm. it, the story, just the, the overall thoughtfulness of your program versus having that person in there is definitely going to do all those things. Totally. Then you look at you're in there three, four days a week. And this is something I struggle with a lot. I still make deliveries. <laughs> people I do too. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing our local deliveries. Yeah, and people <laughs> go. Be, they're thinking they're working with this big company where they've got somebody else. Now it's me. I'm and, in my rap And people for. go, Rob, you got to stop delivering. Think about if you freed up that entire day, uh, the value add to the company, I go, yeah, but who am I, a delivery driver, I'm paying them with what money? Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, you go, yeah. oh, so it is like, I'm a bit hippo hypocritical in the oh, sense totally. that you go, but three, four days of roasting and freeing that up, now all of a sudden you can be out in the market mm. looking at how can we expand this. So that even though both are decisions that uh, would financially stress the business, the outcomes are very different. One, you have a clear asset added to the business that in the form of Austin Powers, real mm -hmm. name, I'm told, <laughs> it, and that he, he is taking over the program, which yep. is definitely going to increase the focus on it. Mm -hmm. It's going to free up not only your time, but for me, a lot of the time, it's just like this, the, the, the space in your mind. Because mm -hmm. the tough thing about when you're doing something like delivering or you're doing something like roasting, you're, it's not like you can be checking your phone and answering emails and be thinking about other things. You have to be locked into what mm -hmm. you're doing mm -hmm. in the case of roasting so that you're being intentional about your roast profile. And in terms of delivering, I can't be answering emails while I'm driving a van. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's those types of decisions that I think on the outside in any like business consultant is going to be like, oh, hire it out. You need to free up. Yeah. And you go, to me, that's always seemed like a kind of arrogant statement yes. to be like, your time is so valuable that you can't be delivering. I go, is it the, like, am I, is my time that insanely valuable? But those are the decisions that I go, is this going to be, if it's something that long-term is going to be great for the business and it's going to help it grow, that those hypothetical scenarios become more real mm. with that decision, it's a no-brainer to me. But like with that venting, you go, spending that 32 grand isn't going to make the hypothetical scenario of wholesale gross, uh, growth, mm -hmm. it's not going to make that growth happen any more clearer mm -hmm. versus having Austin in place is like, no, that is a very clear decision that is going to add to the value of that. No program. brainers. Yeah. Then when someone asks who's roasting the coffee, you go, now we've got somebody with 10 years experience. Cause mm -hmm. that, that does seem to, I won't call it a mistake, mm. but perhaps not the best way to start a roasting program is to just be like, I'm going to learn how to roast on the fly. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> which I was doing a little bit of because I, you know, and I, I've, trained with cafe imports and done mm -hmm. all, all the classes and everything, it doesn't prepare you for actually roasting and then tasting your, your product, getting it out and being able to troubleshoot on the fly and being like 
really fluid in how you're roasting your coffee. Because it seems to me, like, I don't roast. Like, I have Mm -hmm. roasted, and that's why I made the decision that, oh, I don't have the attention to be able to do this. I just don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's a distinct personality type (laughs) that you need to be able to lock in on the smallest details over years and years and years to get really good at it. But it seems to me, the people who are really good at roasting, a lot of the time it's just like a gut feeling about a new coffee or something Mm -hmm. that's happening in the roast. That if I'm tasting this, it's probably this because I remember these eight different coffees that are similar to this one. And you would think, oh, this one's from Ethiopia, so is this one. I can apply this. And and a lot of times it's like, oh, I remember working with a really low-density Brazil Mm -hmm. that's similar to this low-density other origin that actually these two coffees are reacting more similarly than two uh, coffees from a similar region Mm -hmm. and like those years of experience just can't be made up for there is a a lot of that and austin comes to it with a scalability perspective so we are a very small roaster i I won't make any claims that we're a big roaster but he comes to us with experience from large-scale industrial coffee roasters that were you know roasting specialty coffee but doing so on such a large scale they had the you know the the forklifts to move their green beans mm-hmm. right uh, we're not we're not at that scale yet and it gives us the perspective of like okay if we're going to get from s- this small um version of ourselves to a larger version we're going to need somebody with experience so when i had questions about frack packs he was like oh yeah here's how you do it this mm-hmm. is what it would take we're probably not at that point yet or, or we shouldn't be at that point yet and so like okay great i'm taking it to heart and and we'll actually take that as kind of um you know take feeding from his experience when making financial decisions about your company, my, my biggest advice, and especially for like, if you're a small coffee, you're hoping to start up a small coffee shop, you're running the numbers, you're taking into effect any outstanding loans that you have, um, the build out, the daily operating costs, et cetera. You're gonna come to a number of what you need to be doing for daily sales. Let's say it's six or $700 for a coffee shop per day. That needs to be your worst day. Mm. A lot of people think, oh, we only need to see 50 people a day, 55 people a day at an average sale of XYZ and we'll be able to make it. No, that, that, that 600, that $700 needs to be your absolute worst day because it's, it's like saying that uh, if you have a, a day of bad, a bad day of sales in a week, it's like saying, well, but the, every other day we were doing, you know, our, our nominal uh, amount, but it's like, that's, that's as if you were saying, you know, a, a flat tire is fine because all the other tires have air in it. Right. You, you cannot leverage a bad day of sales against a good day of sales or an average day of sales because eventually you're at a point of non-sustainability. And so that, that number that you arrive at needs to be your worst day so that everything up from up top is either profit or operating capital for you to be able to expand and, and put into something more, more beneficial to the business. Uh, I was talking, I forgot who told this. I, actually, it might have been an audio book, but again, this... Memory is an interesting thing. I think it was an audiobook I was listening to where somebody was saying how they make decisions on the business. And it mm-hmm. was somebody that I, based on the reading, I was like, they seem to have a similar personality to me <laughs> <laughs> in terms of just some days I wake up and go, everything's going to be amazing forever. Let's go. Uh-huh. And then other days you wake up, you go, we're going to be out of business in two days. Mm-hmm. And uh, the advice was when he wakes up, he kind of takes note of his emotional state and if he's like today's one of those days that i'm just on it mm-hmm. like i am high energy everything seems through rose-colored glasses he goes those are the days i make marketing decisions <laughs> those are the days that i like do creative planning 
if I wake up and it's doomsday in my head, everything's terrible. I go, those are the days I make financial decisions. Yeah. Should we expand? Should we invest into this? Mm-hmm. And what I took away from that is it sounds bleak, but when you're making real financial decisions, you need to be not in a state of mind that everything's going to go well. Yeah. And it's exactly what you said. You need to plan for what is the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Would I still make this decision if that six, $700 day mark is what I need to be in business? That's the worst day. Yeah. So you need to have this outlook that every day is going to be my worst That's day. Absolutely right. Yeah. Versus yeah. waking up and being like, oh, go get 10 wholesale customers doing 100 pounds a week. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden we're roasting 1,000 pounds <laughs> a week on top of what we're already doing. Yeah. Let's put in that yeah, venting. Yeah. $32,000. Uh-huh. That's going to be nothing a few years from now. And then it's a few years from now. And you're like, I still have those 10 wholesale customers. <laughs> oh, yeah, finding a 100 pound yeah. wholesale customer is yeah. not as easy as I might have thought. Yeah. And it, it, it's that mindset that is kind of bleak about business. It's a very humbling thing mm-hmm. that when you're doing projections, it's so important to be very realistic about it mm-hmm. and also realizing what haven't you done in business and what am I basing my projections off of? The only examples you hear of are people who've, who have had success. Yes. Nobody wants to talk to the people who failed. Nobody <laughs> writes articles about the coffee company that launched and failed in three years. Uh-huh. You don't hear those stories. You yeah. hear the story of, look at this company. They started, and now they're growing, and now they're in these stores. And you go, Out of their parents' garage. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that, but that's one cool thing about this podcast that has been for me is I'm talking to businesses of all range and all different mm-hmm. categories and different sectors in food and beverage and hearing really realistic stories mm-hmm. and hearing about those failures and about the things that went really well. But that's one of the side effects of, I think, this era of social media is you're only seeing the positive. Presenting the story, yeah. And so everything looks like, holy shit, they're, they're po- I'm not going to do a post about, hey, want to let everyone know we just lost this customer today. Uh, Hey, I haven't paid myself in a couple of months. (laughs) I didn't pay myself last month. Why? Well, we had to buy coffee. Uh (laughs) Things are awesome. Because it it is one of those things that it's like you want people to associate your brand with just like a really great feeling. You're you're selling a story first, and that's what attracts the customers. And and if you're... You do see some businesses putting out the sob story of like, oh, you know, and and sometimes you can, you know, leverage uh, the heartfelt part of it. But over time, if you keep playing that that um, that line, people are are kind of bummed out by your product. It's a very fine line when you're thinking about marketing between being real mm-hmm. and having the emotions that people, I think, associate with your brand. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about small business is it's real it's people and people want to know who's behind it and want to know about it but th- going back to covid that was something i noticed right away is that immediately people are like please buy our stuff because things are really hard mm-hmm. which is going to give you a nice spike in sales in the short term For a little bit somebody buys that bag of coffee they go i helped that business i'm good now mm-hmm. versus if they buy that bag of coffee because they're like i want to mm-hmm. they're not viewing that as like a favor and that's it's a that short-term to long-term strategy but the unfortunate byproduct of that is that if you're not being real, people are just anybody getting into that business go, well, this is just how it happens. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you just open the roaster and suddenly you're successful and you're doing you're doing great. It It's not that easy. And, and I think COVID was a really good um, indicator of like how you how you cater your messaging to your, your customers, because you still want to be a positive environment because eventually they're going to be able to sit in the cafe and, and want that same energy. But yeah, you, you can't do it too much or else people will come to expect that messaging from you. How much thought went into 
We've got Cafe Steam. Mm-hmm. This is a growing brand with recognition in Rochester. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're doing some of the best coffee in Rochester, so we've got a great reputation. Mm-hmm. How much thought went into when we launched the coffee roasting program? Do we keep it under the Cafe Steam Tons. name and brand, or Tons. do we launch an entirely new brand? Because obviously now it's Colorway Coffee, entirely separate brand, entirely separate feel. Yep. What was the thought process that went into doing it as an entirely separate brand versus growing on the strength of what Cafe Steam's been doing? Pretty, um, it, there was a lot of thought put into that, not only because if we were going to rebrand something, we're going to have to dump some cash into a you know, branding campaign or, or to be able to hire designers, and et cetera. It'd be easy to put something under the Cafe Steam brand name, and you get a lot of the comments from, we work with a, a company in, in Rochester called Gift Rochester that markets um, locally provided goods to Mayo Clinic staff um, as part of a, a yearly gift promotion for around the holidays. Their association with Rochester is not Colorway Coffee, it's Cafe Steam. Okay. So you, when you see items on a shelf, you want and you see Cafe Steam, you're more likely to make a buy because you have that emotional connection to it because you've been to the coffee shops. And so we opted, however, to use that platform to promote Colorway because we knew that it needed more of the lift that it would be able to provide that exposure component. Um, <clears throat> we knew that we wanted to, or at least my motivation behind opening it under a separate brand name was because when we were going to approach other wholesale clients, say other coffee shops, um, we knew that they did not want to be purchasing coffee from another coffee shop, Mm -hmm. right? Is it the same coffee? Sure. Maybe we're doing specific blends for certain people. And so that makes it unique to them. But if it was still under the cafe steam brand name, that sort of conflict that would be uh, a potential with new wholesale cu- customers. I, I was almost certain that if I were Cafe Steam, I would not want to be purchasing Dunn Brothers coffee for mm. um, the coffee shop because then people are going, well, why don't I just go to Dunn Brothers? Yeah. And, and sure, you're working in a di- different environment. You may be using different milks. You may be using different uh, syrups. But in the back of your mind, you're still thinking like, wait a minute, this is just a, an extension of... Getting like a secondhand experience of Dunn Brothers coffee. Bingo. Yeah. So we wanted to provide that unique experience and and do so under a different brand name because one, it allowed us to approach new wholesale customers. Two, it allowed the company to explore a version of itself that um, it was restricted by with the coffee shop. So um, with Cafe Steam, it's it's this very homey, warm environment. It doesn't necessarily have um, the same branding capacities or, or bandwidth that um, a totally different brand would have. And so I often felt restricted when working with our own brand because I always felt it had to have this certain feel. Um, but the roasting element, I didn't want to reflect that in, in the same way. So the thing the thing that you do, though, when you, you start a new brand is you totally forget what it's like to start a new brand, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a slog to, to go absolutely down to zero and approach people and say, hey, I'm with Colorway Coffee Roasters. And they say, we have no idea who, who mm-hmm. you are. With Cafe Steam, I could go to people and say, hey, we're with Cafe Steam. Oh, I, lo- I love Cafe Steam. So that's been very humbling uh, because you're doing not only um, the growing of a brand um, and attempting to provide people with a connection with a new brand, uh, but you're also doing cold call sales, which is incredibly vulnerable. And it, you have it is rejection therapy to the you know tenth degree. I don't know if, how much cold call sales. That's do you where do? I live, baby. Oh, I mean, you, <laughs> and I'm so jealous of that because you 
<laughs> like that's where you cut your teeth is is in distribution for for beer, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's and you would just approach people like, hey man, we're a beer company, you know, and 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 like you got that experience. I'm teaching myself how to do cold call sales, and I'm not great at it. Uh, and part of it is because. And, and the learning experience for me is you're not trying to sell something. You're trying to uh, provide an opportunity, right? You're, you're going to somebody in need rather than going to somebody who already has a coffee provider um, and has had a 10-year relationship with them is likely not going to switch mm-hmm. overnight because you're new and not going to switch or shouldn't switch just because you're local. Um, local is not an, an entitlement to working with local businesses. You need to have um, a good product and be there at the opportunity to be able to provide them with something that they actually need. So, And the, the other part of it too uh, is when you're thinking about marketing and communication to your customers about what it is you do, one of the difficulties I think of potentially starting the brand under the same cafe name is now you're trying to communicate to customers two different businesses under the same name. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you're having to debate whether it's social media, email marketing, when we're talking to people, when people say, what is Cafe Steam? Mm -hmm. Instead of having to be like, it's cafes and we do wholesale coffee, the two businesses are much more specified in terms of what they do. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking to a new potential customer, you're directing them to the Colorway Coffee website. You're directing them to the Colorway Coffee messaging. Mm -hmm. If it leads them to a website that is about the cafes, they're going to have to do some digging around to even find out about the wholesale program. The initial message might be, oh, they're focused on their own cafes and they happen to roast coffee versus the coffee side of Colorway. You're saying this is the focus of this separate business. This is why it's... just learning the importance of SEO and yeah, the, what people are searching yeah. for. And, and I've learned the value of incoming leads over the past couple of years that it's like, because we're so hyper-focused on wholesale, fortunately now we show up higher when people are searching for those terms yeah. versus the focus purely on a shop. I personally think that the separate brand direction is a great way to go. Mm-hmm. And obviously that decision, if you're someone like Starbucks or Caribou sure. and that brand is so strong that it'd be stupid to do that. Yeah. But if you're in, you know, the first five years of business, it is a humbling experience to go, we, let's start this from scratch. Mm-hmm. But from a strategic perspective, where as a small business, you need to be really nimble mm-hmm. and you need to be able to find these niches, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to SEO or word of mouth that like, I it, you should be able to sum up in a sentence, what it is you do as a business. Cafe Steam started roasting and selling wholesale coffee. You'd be like, uh, we're a cafe serving specialty coffee. We've got three locations. We also roast coffee. We have it available in retail bags. We sell it wholesale. All of a sudden you're like, well, which is it? Versus Colorway, you go, we're wholesale coffee roaster available for retail or, you know, five pound wholesale programs. And that's where it gets interesting. And looking at our wholesale business, it's that fear of losing a cafe steam like customer Mm -hmm. where it's a lot of volume you're like Mm -hmm. oh that hurts yep that it starts to become you realize how important the services that are not coffee are in the wholesale program (laughs) man and that's what cold calling is is you're getting a brutal education about why people don't want to work with you i know why you don't want to buy my coffee (laughs) frankly i wouldn't buy my coffee either if i were you and and i'm not going to provide you with espresso machines and and uh, while we can provide you know on a for small businesses, you know, brewers and grinders, et cetera, I will not be able to get your high volume cafe to a point where that larger entities would be able to 
throw in twenty thousand dollars worth of, equi- mm-hmm. of equipment um, to be able to support you. So, and and that's where that cold calling you start to learn about all these non coffee needs and us being primary. Yes, we opened the shop with Jinx in November, mm-hmm. but we even had that discussion ahead of time that both Jinx and Folly we say this is a showcase for our wholesale brands. Yeah. That's why it was such a unique opportunity because it's like, we're not going to start a food program. There. This is a place for people to experience what we both consider to be wholesale brands. But when I'm learning those things, I go, oh, well, I have to find a way to be able to do these things. Mm-hmm. But that's where those informed decisions become difficult that when you're having these conversations, I've had people tell me, this is the best coffee I've tasted while searching for a coffee, but you don't offer tea. Mm-hmm. So we can't work with you. And I'm like, where's your chai? I go, what? <laughs> We're a coffee company. And they go, yeah, but this other company uh-huh. has decent coffee and they have all these other things. So it's that learning experience of wholesale that those cold calls become really difficult when you leave a meeting and you go, well, shit. yeah, if I was in their position, yeah. I also would have told me no. Yeah. And the entry point is $0, right? Where you, you don't have to give them any money other than what you're purchasing from them for you to be able to have uh, 20, 20, 20 grand worth of equipment show up out of nowhere, which is um, a tough pill to swallow, but it's important because it gives you an objective, right? So as you're growing your business, you're hoping to eventually get to that point where you're able to do that. Um, but yeah, very humbling. And uh, I hate cold call sales. <laughs> and I, I wake up every day dreading having to do them. But And then sometimes, oh, you'll have people who come to you and say, we want to buy your coffee. And and awesome. What are you doing? And we're, we're doing 60 pounds a week. You're like, awesome. Let's, let's do this. And, and then three days later, like, yeah, well, we, we, we're going a different direction. It's not like they're going with somebody else. They're just going to stick with who they've got. And for no reason other than, you know, they just had the, the wind direction changed. It, yeah. it was, that's really hard to anticipate because you, it's these roller coasters of ups and downs. You get really excited about a client. You, you're ready to devote a lot of energy to them, and then suddenly it falls through, and so you have to just kind of mentally prepare yourself. And just that. like even timing of where they're at in the process. It's, uh, there are cases if you talk to somebody too early in the process mm-hmm. of their planning, mm-hmm. that can be really beneficial because they they make their decision up front, or you are no longer the newest, most exciting thing as they're actually the shiny. Uh, as, as we're about to actually launch the program and really make the final decision, all of a sudden – it's almost like the NFL draft right now. Mm-hmm. You see it every year. They go, these are the five best guys. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, at the last second, someone has a great pro day, and you're like, whoa, this guy should be number one. You're like, he wasn't that good. Yeah. It's that yeah. type of thing where you're like, but I thought we were going to work together. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes in, you're like, whoa, cool, we're going to uh-huh. work with them. Uh-huh. And there's so much timing and like intangible things that go into these decisions yep. that it, it can be really frustrating about it. But is like cold calling is – I don't, I don't mind it. <laughs> and it's like that masochist side of me that That's I, crazy. but here's the thing is it's funny. You brought up Boston beer. Cause like, obviously like Sam Adams, angry orchard, twisted tea. These are really established brands. So yeah. it's not like I'm going in with no brand recognition, but sometimes, sometimes that's worse though. Sometimes it, when people are like, you think Sam Adams, you're not like, well, my customers want something specialty or they want something. This is know, when sweet. craft beer was exploding. Yeah. So I was getting nothing but no's all day. Because they're going like, I already know about Sam Adams. You're not telling me anything new. So I did that for four years. And so four years of just expecting to get no's and knowing that if, hey, if I can get a win one out of every 10 calls that day. That's that's a good ratio too. Yeah. And that's, you know, 10 to 12 calls a day for four years. You're like, okay, yeah, so I just did really? thousands of calls that, you know, the 
there's the weirdness. I was even thinking about this the other day as I just like walked into a customer, just walked into the kitchen, didn't even register that I'm like just some random dude walking into their yeah. kitchen. Even that stuff is a little weird early on where you're like in these, hey, is it cool if I'm here? Yeah, and, yeah. and then now you're just like, oh, I, I should probably be a little more cognizant of you this. work there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those types of things. But it's the, the repetition of that rejection therapy is uh-huh. th- that great phrase that you go, yeah, it, it, this is the mindset I have that people say that's probably not healthy uh, is if you wake up in the morning and assume everything is going to go wrong that day yeah, and everything goes wrong that day, you go, I predicted that perfectly. <laughs> if nothing goes wrong that day, you're like, whoa, this day was way, way better, better than, than I expected. Than I expected. Yeah. What a great day. And that's kind of what like you need to prepare mm-hmm. for a sales call as if it's going to go perfectly, but you go in with the expectation that like, no. Mm-hmm. When you look at it from the buyer's side, it's like you said, if someone, you're a stranger to them, Colorway is a brand new brand they haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. You're asking them to upend their entire coffee program mm-hmm. for someone they just met with no trust built. It's a huge ask. I've got, you get lucky though sometimes. Sometimes yeah. you'll be, you'll be, have folks that are with a, 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 a larger company, but they're really not satisfied because the customer service is not um, individualized. So, yes. um, We've been able to pull a couple like that where I'll go in and be like, hey, you know, we're a local brand, you know, we're, we're smaller, blah, 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 which is important to me and important to them. And it resonates. And they're like, yeah, actually, this would make sense. And like, do you do um, equipment servicing? And we're like, well, let's take a look at what you got. And I'm like, yeah, I can figure that out. And yeah. like, that's fine. Um, but by and large, it's going to it's really tough to go head to head with those those larger companies. Yeah. And you just need to figure out what you're really good at. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, it doesn't come down to coffee, oddly enough. You need to have absolutely stellar coffee to stand a chance. Mm -hmm. Like, they need to taste yours and go, yes, this Mm -hmm. is better. And when I was first starting, I was like, I'm going to, that's how we're going to close. They're going to taste it, be like, this is better than what they're serving. That just gets you to be able to continue talking in that meeting. If they taste that coffee and say, I don't like this, Mm -hmm. then the meeting's over. They're not even going to consider it. But if they taste it and go, "Eh, this is fantastic. This is better than what we're serving. Sometimes you can get multiple phases in there too. Like you get the, oh, what was it? We got the head chef and then I had a meeting with the sommelier and a meeting with the CEO and we're brewing coffee for them. Wow, this is great. Your pricing looks good too. And they come back to it and you're like, each phase you're feeling really good about it, but then you just, it sinks because you can't provide and then the current supplier, they can reach out and be like, hey, you might just be getting used as leverage. So oh, yeah. you go, hey, we're, we're thinking uh, about switching over I've here. I've had that before, yeah. You know, this is great coffee, and here's the price. And then they go, yeah. hey, our supplier just cut us 15%. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, if you're that supplier and you go, I'm either going to lose this customer or I'll just make really a smaller margin. Gain out my margin, mm-hmm. you know, which, I guess. <laughs> and that's why, like, it's, and it sucks if someone comes to you with that as a current supplier is you kind of have to draw a line in the sand at some point because that's an unsustainable long-term mm-hmm. But uh, so when you're looking at Colorway, this kind of goes back to the conversation to bring it full circle of what we were talking to right before. Mm. Do you have like a, a, an idea of who your wholesale customer is as you're going out and looking? Mm-hmm. Or is it kind of, let's do these cold calls and figure out is the best fit because it is like I've said before, few and few and far between the perfect customer. That's like, Mm -hmm. I only care about coffee. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Price is not important. Mm -hmm. I want to work with a local provider. Mm -hmm. I have all my own equipment. By the way, it's the latest, (laughs) the latest espresso machine, Uh the best brewing equipment. We know how to dial it in ourselves. No education needed. Our baristas are are actually probably more skilled. And you're like, and we want to use your coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Happens once in a century. (laughs) So taking all of those factors out of it, sometimes our cold calls are very exploratory. Okay. You're kind of, and you've said it, you're expecting a no. Sometimes you're looking for a no, but you want the why associated Mm -hmm. with it. So frack packs were a really good conversation as to, you know, before we started of like, all right, why is it that our um, threshold for entry on a a client is is not there is because we're not offering frack packs. And it's like, okay, well, we know we're not offering this service, but why can't we offer this service? And part of it, it comes down to, you know, ethical decision of like, okay, how could we change our model to be able to accommodate this customer? Would it compromise any of our other uh, endeavors? Like, you know, pre-grinding coffee for, for one is something that we really don't want to do. Um, but if the cash is green, what, at what point would you do it? And, and, but it, big picture, you don't want to compromise your brand because if somebody has an experience with it at, at that end point, it reflects then on the rest mm-hmm. of the portfolio. So like you said, you want somebody who is trained, works with the product, is, is familiar with working with the product and able to um, represent it in the best way possible. Um, I think the exploratory origin of cold calling and, and you know, trying to figure out, well, what is our, our ideal customer? Um, restaurants are really good, even though they're lower volume, some of which who offer like brunch or something like that, if they're more high end, um, they are a great starter for wholesale customers because they often have their own brewing equipment. Um, and they're just working with a really bad product. Um, and they're, say, for example, Blue Duck is a, um, an American kitchen in, in um, Rochester. Fine dining experiences. Everything on their um, repertoire is higher end until you got to the coffee. And the coffee could use it, potentially use improvement. And um, we discovered there were a couple, a multitude of factors that were playing into it. One, they hadn't serviced their equipment in a really long time, and it was in a very simple way. Some things needed to be descaled, some brew ratios needed to be adjusted, grindbergs needed to be changed out, et cetera. We were able to come in and say, like, well, this is what we need. We know we need to do um, to get it to a point where it's acceptable, and then being able to show them the product with that, and they're like, wow, that's, you know, it, no-brainer. This tastes incredibly better. We're also brewing a larger volume, so we're making more more margin. So it's actually eating up the cost of what we were putting into a, a coffee that wasn't, you know, tasting good. Um, and so that that I found is a, a uh, an easy way. But a lot of those, like say for a diner or something like that, they're using frack packs or they're using mm-hmm. something that is just it's just really hard to do. And you could go to them and say, hey, you know, I can give you brewers and have this um, be. Uh, you, you know, give you all of the equipment, but then you still have to do the training and you have to think about, okay, how much of that burden am I going to be able to take on and have it be realistic? But I wish I had this like nice packaged up answer for mm-hmm. what what's our ideal client. And, and really it's, it's more about what bandwidth do we have available to us at this time because our client model may change in six months, um, but we need to be there and ready for that change. Um, so being just as flexible with roasting as we are with, the coffee side of, of things that we need to change. And yeah, cause there's a, uh, 
I think it's important to kind of, there's like the obvious ethical decisions in coffee yeah. that people are going to be like, like this happened recently. It was like, hey, if you can get it down to this price, we, we yeah. would, we'd order 500 pounds of coffee from you for this thing. And I go, at that price, it would be coffee that I'd be entirely uncomfortable with how we were able to source it at that price. The yep. whole supply chain, if we dig into it, not, so we just won't do that. Yeah. There's obvious ethical decisions and that's fairly simple. You can say if it's below this price, we're just not doing it. Here's our margin requirements. So here's our absolute floor that we can do on pricing. Mm -hmm. If it's below that, sorry, we just can't work together. But then there's the the frack packs of the world. Mm -hmm. for, uh, for anyone listening, frack pack is those the foil packets that have pre-ground coffee. And you, so it eliminates the need for a grinder. It's really common in like offices or restaurants that don't want to have a grinder taking up space or just, you know, having to deal with that. You're just ripping it dumping it into the filter, and then it's brewing. That's more of like a directionary or a directional decision of what do I want my brand represented yeah. as or how our coffees are being consumed. And that's what we were talking about before is like grocery stores, when we launched in 2018, at least in Minnesota, I think people in the specialty coffee world viewed it as like... A step down. We're not putting our coffee there because it would greatly hurt our brand. And my thought process that I was saying before is, no, it's not the best place to get coffee. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, even if you're delivering locally, it's probably a couple months off roast, not ideal. But I'm looking at the other coffees on the shelf and looking at the data going, well, 60% of people buy their coffee from grocery stores. They think this is the, what coffee tastes like. Mm -hmm. So if I can have a better one on the shelf, and I'm wondering if frack packs, you know, now we're talking pre-ground, mm. which like we do frack packs for certain scenarios, but mm -hmm. I kind of have that same thinking that it's like, well, it'll be way better than the coffee they have now. But if that's the first time somebody's ever had Folly, yeah, who knows how many it, it's tough. How, how many packets are going in there? To someone who hasn't been trained, they just put the one in there, and then you've got a cup of, like, tea water. How are they filtering the water? What or somebody rips four of them in there, and you got yeah. jet fuel. And then, <laughs> yeah, what? it's a ton of different factors that if some, that's the first time somebody's ever had folly, they go, I don't see it. I don't get it. Uh, it's not any better than what I've had in that cafe. Uh those are the types of decisions that it is important to kind of have those predetermined as you're growing, mm -hmm. uh, to know where that line is of we will or won't do this, or we won't do this right now, but if technology changes or if we can find a way to do it, that it is tasting really good, that we're willing to do it at that point. Um, what changed over for me with the grocery stores, because we're now in a handful of grocery stores hoping to expand it, was I had a user experience where they came to Rochester, went into a grocery store with the goal of trying to evaluate the um, the ecosystem of coffee in Rochester, and all that was available to them was coffee not from around here. And you're like, wait a minute, they're they're realistically in a coffee shack section in a small town should be something uh, available that is from a local roaster. Now we're at a scale right now where we can do more inventory management for these partners. So what, for example, the Hy-Vee that I shop at for my personal shopping is uh, nearby my house. and I'm able to check the inventory on an almost yeah. you know, every other day basis. So I know what the turnover is generally going to be. Um, and we're able to, you know, uh, add more inventory or manage that a little bit better. I, I can understand at a point where you're hoping to do, let's say, 
a monthly turnover where you're, you're giving them enough so that they, you know they're going to sell all of that within a month. Um, and you're able going to be able to refresh it at, after that point. Um, but I, I, you want to lower the threshold um, for a quality experience to, to meet the, um, the accessibility point that most people operate in. Yeah. You, you made a good point of how many, how, what percentage of people are actually using pour overs in their home. <laughs> it's 2% of people. And yet all of your marketing material are for pour overs because you're trying to advertise this heightened experience or this culinary experience. Most people are brewing it on a Keurig. Uh, a lot of people are taking your I mean, coffee and brewing it on a Keurig. Thirty percent of homes have a K cup machine. Yeah, but the most common one is still a drip coffee brewer. It's great, and it, it then it becomes this balance. And this is you can see where this theme of like how do we want our brand to be perceived versus the potential for volume sales is this constant battle that you're doing as you're looking at potential areas to sell more coffee. And when you're thinking grocery stores. That one was obvious to me. I go, this is so many people who've never even thought about specialty coffee that maybe I can get them to start thinking about it. And when you're looking at like social media, you're like, well, pour over looks super sexy. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to make a single cup of coffee. But if 2% of people are doing that at home and that's exclusively how you're showing your coffee being brewed, 98% of people are like, oh, that looks really cool. I don't do that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. That. It's that balance that, well, if all of a sudden we just start doing all drip coffee makers, now are people going to be like, oh, this must not be a great coffee brand. So it's like a chicken or the egg situation that you go, do people perceive brands in grocery stores as being low end? I think that has shifted a lot over the past five years. If our coffee is only being showed on drip coffee brewers, is that going to make people think it's just not that great of a Mm. coffee? I don't think so. And that's actually shifted how I want to start thinking about like the... The tutorials you put out, the the tips and tricks you put out. You go, well, if 98% of people are not doing pour over, my three videos about how to do the best pour over, there's going to be a person that's like, first of all, if somebody's doing pour over, they've probably already done the research. Yeah. You're not, so all of a sudden. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't need to be putting pour over tips on my bag anymore because, you know, everybody who's brewing is pour over already has it accessible. They already know and they've already watched the videos versus like if you did tips and tricks to improve your home drip coffee machine. Water quality. There'd be, it's not 98%. They're not all doing drip coffee, but it's the number one brewing coffee at home. I forget the exact percentage, but all of a sudden you're talking to the majority of people who make coffee at home. Mm -hmm. And it's things like that, that it does seem to be a constant balance of how do I want the brand to be perceived versus what are the actual realistic business goals that would be more helpful than just focusing on what specialty coffee is kind of perceived as. Totally. And that's, a, that's where, like, the cafe is very different than the wholesale business. It's because yeah. at Cafe Steam, you control every point. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we kind of went through it in uh, a funny way uh, of going from the coffee shop to the roastery. You know, they're, they're, most often I feel like it's roastery transitions to having locations to better feature their brand um, so that they make it more accessible to people. So it really it gave us a lot of you know, great learning experience and especially in um in that marketing component because one of the lessons that i learned very early on is is don't sell things the way you want them to be purchased sell things in the way that they want to be bought by somebody so if i'm selling something as a pour over it's not really people aren't having that same connection to it but if i sell it as you know something that's great for a home home coffee brewer then that makes it a, a lot more attractive to people because it lowers the threshold of of having a quality product at home. And that mindset is crucial because you're like, no, I know 
way more about coffee than my customers. Mm -hmm. So I should be telling them how they should be brewing it, where they should be brewing it, what type of water to be. And you're like, most people don't care that much. They'll get coffee if it's good, but I'm going to use my same tap water. I'm going to use my same grinder, my my blade grinder. I'm going to put it in the same drip coffee brewer I've been using for five years. Mm -hmm. And if you're making your customer feel like they're wrong after having spent their money on your product, they're like... Well, that's a weird feeling. Now I feel inferior to this person that's nice versus going, trying to receive that feedback or at least get an idea of why are people buying the coffees they're buying. Mm-hmm. And that's another balance thing. If you listen to everything customers told you, you'll go out of business because you're going to end up being really homogenized. Yes. But if you're only saying this should only be drank as pour over and you, it, it, we don't even want you to buy our coffee if you're not using third wave water to yeah. get the best profile. And it's, yeah. then you're also going to put yourself out of business. So it's everything's in that gray area of marketing and branding and volume. And But the one thing that always remains consistently true is like the quality has to be absolutely incredible to have a foot in the door. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they're starting business, they go, if my quality is incredible, I'm going to have a successful business. You're like, <laughs> that's what you need to be able to have a chance. That's, that's just day one. Yeah, There are Every, people with bad products and great, all those other yeah, things that yeah. are doing really well. And then sometimes you have those lofty goals of like, yeah, I want to be selling that carbonic maceration, that really interesting coffee that I really enjoy, that I think is super unique and, and is unique because it's not only tastes good, but it's kind of out there in, in the coffee production world. Um, but people just, sometimes they just want a cup of coffee. They don't want to be challenged by it. They, they're waking up. It's, you know, 530 in the morning if they, and, and uh, they just want that cup of coffee. We're, our goal is to make sure that that plain old cup of coffee is as best as it possibly can be. Um, and having options available to folks that, you know, kind of broadens their horizons uh, to explore new options, but also having the old reliable of not low-grade coffee by any means, but yeah. not something that you don't have to, um, doesn't require a lot of thought while you're drinking it. Yeah, and it's it's really counterintuitive. And this was actually something I learned at Boston Beers. Like, you, you need a flagship product. Yeah. And it's going to be doing the highest percentage sale. And it seems counterintuitive uh, because actually the higher percentage uh, sales that that is doing versus your other products, I think is better. Mm. Because then you've got this proven one mm. that you know is going to have a high likelihood of succeeding at a store, at a wholesale account, whatever it may be. Versus if you had like equal sales across eight, ten different SKUs, you'd be like, we don't really know what to put in the store. Oh, yeah. But then the yeah. other products that you have in a store or you're offering to a wholesale customer, it's more about why do we have this here? Mm-hmm. Obviously, like you want them to also sell. But the question is, why do we have these additional offerings on the table? Something like a carbonic maceration or something really funky, you're going to attract a specific type of customer, and you want them drinking your coffee because mm-hmm. th- those are the type of people that everybody goes to, where should I get my coffee from? It's the Malcolm Gladwell book, Tipping Point. I think I believe they mm-hmm. refer to them as the maven. It's the person mm-hmm. that everybody goes to. They've got someone in their friend group that this is my coffee person. Mm-hmm. And I go to them and be like, what do you think of Folly? Mm-hmm. And I just got it. So we did the... Uh, Double carbonic fermented. I saw that uh, Columbia honey processed geisha with galaxy hops. God, there's so many things going on there. But it, from a coffee person, we like, called it the meme coffee. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. yeah, 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 yeah. It's self-aware. It's the first time in a couple of years that other roasters in the Twin Cities were like, "When can I get that?" No, that's I saw I I saw a photo of it. And I'm like, "Damn, I need to try that. I need to I need to get some of that." How much of it did we sell? Not a lot. No, but I even got a DM from someone that like. I would go, 
this is awesome because it was like, this is one of the best coffees I've ever had. I never thought about Who was it. Uh, just some random oh, Instagram an followers. No, no, no. Uh, there was, but it was like, it actually changed the way I think about folly. Like uh-huh. I've always thought of you one way and never even tried your coffee. Mm. And now you've re-engaged that person. So it's like, that's a perfect example of, from a business sense, that made absolutely no sense to buy and roast. Yeah. But from a branding and marketing expe- or like thought, it was very valuable. If we only did that coffee, we'd be out of business in six months. Mm-hmm. But if we never did stuff like that, you'd lose that crowd of the hardcore coffee yeah. nerds that build a, like are important people for reputation. And that's where it gets interesting. <laughs> what are coffee? Are there coffee brands that you really admire, like uh, roasters that you're you're looking at and you're like, God, I wish I was nowhere in the like, Twin Cities. I yeah. hate everyone, yeah, especially you, Jared and Wesley one, yeah. Andrews. Oh, Let's Jared and Wesley guys. Andrews, that guy. <laughs> no, uh, what? So, so there are definitely some roasters that I look at. I think uh, Dark Matter in Chicago. Okay. I know they've got the, there's some weird stories that have come about, but for, I'm talking Isn't from a it, beer they, business they, and they do like the standpoint. satanic stuff. Yeah, they they the reason I like what they're doing. <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily satanic. I think that's who I th- I'm thinking of. That, I right? think someone who was religious might not be crazy about everything they do, but no, it's just like very. They do like oh yeah the the blend they released really recently definitely had kind of a satanic vibe no, no, to it. But look these guys they do some some things from a business standpoint that I think are really cool. Is they have their standbys. The branding is absolutely gorgeous. The coffees are stellar. Mm-hmm. And then they'll do really stupid weird shit that as a coffee professional I go I have to try that. Jeff went to Chicago. The only coffee he brought back for me to try was a Malort barrel aged coffee. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> but, Why? It, but <laughs> But awesome. Jeff yeah. bought that coffee sure and brought enough. it back. He goes, "I want you to taste yeah, this." Yeah. One. So you go, that's so weird and stupid that it re-engages you with the brand. And but if you get any of their staples, you're like, "These are great coffees." Yeah. And sometimes you need this almost weird out there thing for somebody to go, I want to try that. Sure. Like our, you know, our uh, whiskey barrel aged coffee we did for St. Patrick's Day. Like that's a great example. That coffee turned out stellar. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at who's ordering it online, you go, a lot of these are first time customers. There are customers I know that only order our limited releases. If we mm-hmm. stop doing weird, funky, experimental limited releases, we'd lose that customer and they would not really ever think about the brand again. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, that is the cool side about having the wholesale side separately is you can start to do limited releases. And it, that's where having the three locations is awesome is you can do limited releases and you have a place to, to sell them. them that's not just online. Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden you're going, if we can buy a super limited amount of this coffee, now we have a place to sell it that you go financially. It's not worth the time. Yeah. It's not worth the money. But you're keeping people engaged to like remind them that it's like, no, we're doing killer coffees yeah. over here. Let us do this crazy one to remind you and that it, hopefully you drink that and go, actually, I haven't had their house bean in like yeah. five years. Maybe I should try that again. Cause if this uh, is good, maybe I'm just like misremembering yeah. about that. And if that experimental coffee bombs, you can just put it in the cold brew. <laughs> 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 yeah. That, that we would just have to charge $20 a glass for that cold. brew. So after I do need to absolve dark matter. I'm, I'm thinking of dark arts coffee, dark uh, arts, so no. dark arts does the satanic stuff. Dark yeah. matter. They look a, a far more wholesome. Dark matter is more like graffiti, but they dark. did just release that. I was like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's, it's a skull on a, you know, a trident. I'm like, okay, I, yeah. I can see where someone would see it, but yeah. I think they do it really well. 
Um, I'm trying to think of other brands on the fly in terms of like, because the, the, the flip side of that is you can, I can, you can rattle off brands that all have the exact same way they focus on coffee. Here's the roaster. Here's the origin. Here's the processing method. Mm. Here's some flavor notes that are only relatable to professional baristas or coffee tasters. And then here's the thing about how we source the finest ethically sourced coffees from around the world and mm. roast them intentionally. And so I like the brands that like Dark Matter is one. Like you go down there, each cafe is different. Yeah. All their cafes have different names. And then it's just like served, you know, uh, Dark Matter coffee what? here. And it's it's like each cool. one is its own unique personality. We do that, but it's all under the, br- the cafe steam brand. Like yeah. each of these, lo- our locations is so totally different from the other one. Yeah. Because the ecosystems are different. And, and they do it to the extent where each one has a different name. So you're like, oh, do you want to go to the mothership? Do you want to go to this location? And then the branding says serving dark matter cool. coffee. So it's almost like that's an indication that's like dark matter is a wholesale available coffee. Yeah. And these are our representations of our cafes. Wow. I think they're probably the most unique that I, I walked in. I was like envious of their branding, the way they communicate the coffees they were doing. And then also during that had some of the best, like I had a, barrel aid a whiskey barrel aid shot while i was there that was like this is also really well executed um trying to put me on the spot here in terms of other brands but i i think overall i am seeing a shift of people learning that it's hard to build a brand off of just focusing on origin Mm -hmm. and my mindset on that has always been is people saying well you have to put it because you need to represent who you're roasting Mm mm-hmm Go to the farmer and say, hey, I think I can sell more of your coffee if I don't focus on that. They're going to say. Well, or if it's, yeah, there's the marketability part of it. Like, like if, if, if an origin is called, like, the dog barf <laughs> Guatemala, <laughs> you're just like, yeah, we got to change his name up a little bit. But, like, our bags, you can find the origin information yeah. of the farm and everything on the website, but it's not on our bags. No. Most people don't care. Yeah. So if I go to a farmer and say, hey, if we do it this way, I believe we'll sell this much of your coffee every year. Mm-hmm. Would you be offended if your name's not on the bag? They go, you're buying a couple pallets of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It it is almost this like, oh, no, we need to be the ones doing this. And the farms are like, we want to sell more coffee. Yeah. All we care about is, well, I shouldn't say all they care about, but from from their perspective, they need to get coffee out. And if it improves the... Um, how quickly their coffee is moving it, that just makes the most... it's, It's almost like if you phrased it, hey, would you rather... I do only single origin mm. and it's your coffee and we put the name of every detail on the bag or I could put your coffee in our dark roast blend mm-hmm. that we're going to do five times the sales on mm-hmm. of this one specific release. Which would you prefer? They'd be like, put put me in the blend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's that kind of thing. Yep. That It's kind of how I look at it where it, you go, it's just because it's how everybody is doing it doesn't mean that it's necessarily what's best for everybody. Yeah. No, and I think <laughs> you have a really refreshing perspective because, you, and I mean, more power to them, the folks that are just hyper-specialty focused, and that's where I hope to kind of have my core values are in just like yeah. really representing and, and um, high traceability, great ethics, not compromising ethics in any way, but still creating a product that is realistic to the end consumer, um, where I'm not having to read three, three paragraphs of a description to be able to understand what a coffee <laughs> might be, um, as important as those are to have in the back end where it's it's available to you if you want to continue to learn about that coffee it doesn't need to be necessarily on the bag uh, or you know if, if not if, if on the bag it doesn't need to be like overwhelming in any way yeah and it's it, 
It's one of those things that I think from a quality perspective, like I will say this to this day, I'll put our coffees on the table with anybody, mm-hmm. our entire lineup. Yeah. Like I'll put them on the table with anybody. But you have coffees that I remember. You had a Ugandan natural a couple <laughs> of years ago. I was like, wow, this is this is a great coffee. Because yeah. First of all, I rarely have coffees from Uganda that I'm like blown away by. Yeah. And, you know, naturals carry with it that same, you know, kind of um, of like, yeah, but it's a natural. So, you know, as much as I, I love them, it you have coffees that stand out amongst the rest. Yeah. And that's but that's the we're never going to sacrifice quality because of that, because mm-hmm. I need to be able to say that I'll put our coffees on the table with anybody. But then on the other side, you go now, how do we get more people to try this? Mm-hmm. And it is the branding and marketing of the wholesale coffee, which is exciting to me mm-hmm. that I go it is exciting to me when I learn that only 2% of people are doing pour over you're like oh shit I've been doing this my, my video is wrong for like the past three years mm-hmm. <laughs> but all of a sudden you're thinking whoa now there's a whole population of people that I haven't been communicating to mm-hmm. that this is going to resonate with way more mm-hmm. and they're the ones buying the bags of coffee at the grocery store or online and bring it at home that I think the key, one of the keys is like, as opposed to getting, when you get the nose and all that, mm-hmm. is to be like, this sucks, to be like, okay, there's still a ton of opportunity out there. And yeah. it's, you have to get really excited when you kind of learn a new thing and you're like, whoa, shit, I've been doing this this wrong yeah. and still finding any level of success yeah. is, is, yeah. is kind of exciting to me. Yeah, it, it, it's really, it's sobering to look back on the mistakes that you've made. <laughs> like, I can't believe we, we got to this point of like, being able to, oh gosh, there are, there are so many mistakes that, that a person can make, but it's important to be able to make those mistakes and learn from them. And then that allows you to have that same excitement to grow your brand. Yeah. And to have made those mistakes and be like, we're still in it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know. That, I know. That was pretty much like all of 20 and 21 was like, if I could list the mistakes and be like, holy yeah. shit, how do we make it through that? But we're still here. What's the one thing you look back on and you were like, dang, I really wish I hadn't done Dude. that. Okay. So launched built a new website right when COVID hit I remember you did that like overnight too oh oh, yeah over a period of three days I slept like six hours yeah it was bad but launched a new website and was like whoa online sales obviously are spiking but like (laughs) they were they were sustaining sure and then we relaunched the new website I was like whoa this is creating even more growth Mm -hmm. and I this was one of those examples of I was spending money based on a hypothetical, I was like, I'm going to hire a marketing agency. Mm. They're going to produce a video. They're going to put out the ads. I've already talked to them. They're getting three to eight times ROAS return on ad spend on every video they're doing. I'm going to spend all this money that I don't really have because that return on ad spend is, they're saying it's like a sure thing. Mm -hmm. Spent an ungodly amount of money at the time Mm. on this program to have, they, this is the first time it was ever content that we didn't make. It, you let the brand go. They did the video. Yeah. And then they started putting out the ads, negative ROAS on it. So paid separately for the production of the videos. And then all the money that was going into the ad spend was a negative return. We're not really seeing orders come through. And the ones that did weren't really subscriptions. It was like a bag at a time, which is tough. Mm-hmm. And like that was one of those sunken cost times where they had to say, well, no, it'll get better. And I was like, I have to cut ties right now. We're going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. One of those, like legitimately, if I spent on the second half of this campaign, campaign mm-hmm. we were planning, we'd be under. Yeah. And everybody is, every business has been there and they don't talk about it enough. Like yeah. where you hit that, you're looking at, you're staring at your bottom line and you're, you're like, oh, that's, this is it. We've got X number of months left. And, and that informs me now. It's like anytime someone, oh, he, you know, here's the row as we're seeing, here's the, oh, this is what will happen. You go, no one can ever tell you what will happen. Mm-hmm. 
I was planning on their best case projections. Mm-hmm. I need to plan on, well, what if this fails? Yeah. Well, if it fails, I, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and everybody was filled with, and I, th- what, cause what time of, of year were you doing that campaign? That, that was probably like late 2020, early 2021. Same time for me. That yeah. Was, when, when I made like, I wouldn't say the, you know, bad financial decisions, but where we were like the tightest was po- like, I would say post COVID where the drawdown is starting to happen, where people aren't quite as um, willing to spend money as they we were. Come out of this like I thought crazy we, I thought we were on the upswing, right? Yeah. It was the opposite. You were on the downswing and everybody was, was going for the pitch. Yeah. And it's the, the lesson I learned from that, that I apply to everything now is that there is almost never one knockout punch is if we do this one huge move, it's going to change everything. If we do this one huge campaign, if we, oh, we just need this one big move and it's going to alter the entire direction of the company. It's always, it's the small, it's the smaller consistent jabs that over time you need to make just smart, smaller decisions that build on themselves over time versus yeah. being like, we're going to blow our entire budget that we don't really even have that I'm, yeah, I'm budgeting on this ROAS that they've given us that we're going to be making this money back the second we spend it. And then that didn't happen. I was like, well, that's risk. That's risk. We have no money left after that. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some businesses who have that one punch and it's great, but their business is built off of that one punch. Mm. And, and that's a really dangerous place to be because as soon as that dries up, you're left, you know, with your hands in your pockets. Yeah. And that that's the difference of, do we want to, blow it out of the water short term and it's it's business goals too you're like that yeah it might be great if you're trying to like get a viral product and maximize as much sales as possible for the next one to two years Mm -hmm. and then once this fad or trend reverses then we're just out of it or we try to sell it when it's at its peak or whatever but if you're trying to build something like especially coffee it's not i don't think there's going to be some huge trend or fad in specialty coffee beans that happens where you're going to explode on something like that in the next six months But it is amazing to see how much the coffee um, landscape has changed for especially coffee in the the course of the last 10 years. Because, you know, I remember having like your uh, varietal listed on on the bag as being like, oh, my gosh, that's super specialty. But again, that's not something that's a long term, Mm -hmm. you know, brand builder. Right. But you have to be able to move with the ecosystem and be able to adapt to certain things and, and evolve. Uh, but you sh- can't change your brand overnight to accommodate for some flash in the pan thing. Mm-hmm. That's that's super dangerous. Yeah, man. It'll be really interesting to see yeah. the landscape in the next like five years. I think it's going to continue to change and it's going to be that constant balance of where the volume is, where the people are drinking coffee currently to how much can you influence them to mm-hmm. be able to change their drinking habits. And it's always somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Because we're all, th- oh, everybody's doing pour over because it's the best way to make coffee. Eh, but what if we could get that too to nine ten percent and yeah. what if people brewing with drip coffee makers bought a you know an sca approved drip coffee maker yeah. and it's just like what are the things that are going to move that needle of quality of coffee up overall and it's there's not one punch there's not one every kickstarter right now for every new hand grinder. Yeah, I, like, I knew you were going to say hand grinder too this <laughs> is gonna this is gonna change the way people view co- no it's not It's it's not. It might look sexier. It might have the brand name. It might have the endorsements. But there's not buy it because it's sexy, not because it's going to make better coffee. Yeah, it's you're you're grinding coffee and putting it in hot water. 
It's not going to be one major thing. Like, really, the Keurig is the last huge game-changing thing. Yeah. And that brought the quality of coffee down. So now it's but now the specialty coffee industry is going to be there to catch and, and adapt to meeting Keurigs. As awful as it sounds, I think my big prediction for coffee roasters is that they're going to start to see a lot more of that. Um, you're going to start to see names that you wouldn't assume mm-hmm. starting to sell in K-Cups. And I think Peace Coffee just line, uh, yep. launched their li- uh, line of pods, and yep. I think it's that's where you go get the balance of the quality, the potential brand view versus the potential volume that's there. And that, that's the constant kind of battle you have to have as a business decision, knowing that if you start doing that, that that's the way I view it, and this will kind of be my last thought, is like, I try to view it as if this was somebody's first exposure to folly, mm-hmm. would they think hot, this is great coffee or would they not? Mm. And so something like frack packs, maybe not. Mm. Hopefully we're able to be in tune with the amount of coffee we're filling. It was a big one that we learned that the packs they were buying were a much smaller pack per size. So mm-hmm. we increased the coffee per frack pack mm-hmm. so that when they use the same uh, amount of packets that they were getting actually good brewing ratios. Uh-huh. So we try to do things like that. But I think that's how I look at it is if this is somebody's first exposure to the brand, are, are they going to think highly of it or not? And you know, K cups are one of those that we'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other big predictions for Coffee World? I know we're kind of running over time. I don't Dude, Espresso is growing at home use. Ah, that was my that was my 2020. That was my. I, we are selling so much of our our um, espresso right. because people ha- are they say I drink I'm drinking espresso every day because and I could see it because I remember trying to buy a home espresso machine during COVID and I, and they were all sold out and I was like oh this is gonna this is the next thing and so like Nespresso those those are surprisingly impressive little machines for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I think once somebody cracks the code, and this might be where like a coffee brewer could come along is like, is there something in between? Like I have a Breville at home, but those, I got mine like refurbished for on the cheap, but like brand new, those are like 600 bucks. Mm -hmm. That's not cheap. Mm -hmm. Is there something in between like the hundred dollar Nespresso where you need the specific pod? Is there something that's going to come along that's more affordable, but still makes great espresso? Like, I love the flare manual espressos, yeah. but no one like it. There's, it takes a hardcore enthusiast to want to do that at home. I think, yep. and they have a great business because there are a lot of those that aren't going to spend on that amount. But like something that is both convenient, makes great espresso, and is mm-hmm. easy to use at home. But I think home espresso consumption is going to continue to go up. I agree. Uh, that that is one that like our espressos are a bestseller too. The SOB, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I do think a percentage of that is people that think espresso is a different type of coffee <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're they just do. making it in their coffee maker yeah which one of these is espresso and like, well they're all espresso some of them you might, might not like as yeah. an espresso but that's one where you go i'm not going to sit here and try to explain it to every yeah. person if yep. you like it great i'm awesome. just going to make it yeah espresso. exactly yeah but outside of that uh i don't know it's kind of tough to predict where things will go uh and minnesota's i think the most unique market in america because we have cafe imports right here yeah. so your threshold to start roasting is one bag of coffee that you can go pick up yep. directly from the warehouse. You've got Mill City here. Yep. So your threshold for getting a three kilo, a five yep. kilo, 10 kilo roaster is, so, so it's like the predictions for what happens in the Twin Cities, I think are is really different on a regional or national scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been saying this since I started Folly, but the number of roasters is, is going to continue to, and continue to increase. Mm-hmm. The lo- What used to be local used to be like, is it made in the same region? 
And then it was, is it made in the same state? Then it's, is it made in the same area code? Mm. And then eventually it's going to be like, is this made in the same zip code? Is this in my neighborhood? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that's that whole, like, the way people perceive local yeah. is going to continue to radically change in coffee. Yeah, no, I agree. I think for my predictions, K-Cups, I think you're going to see a lot of roasters starting to um, get into more con- higher, higher consumer level stuff. Um, from the cafe side, I think there's going to be a lot more digital interfacing for um, how you're ordering coffee. Um, have it, you know, and, and that's mostly to reduce cogs. You know, you've got, you're putting X number of dollars into payroll. What if you just had somebody order on a tablet and still be able to talk to the barista, but the barista's back there making the drink. And, and um, I think that's, you're probably, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Starbucks started to do that because Starbucks, as much as, especially coffee wants to hate them, they set the tone for a lot of oh, things. Yeah. Um, every, every time Starbucks starts doing something, the rest of the coffee market needs to be there to, to um, answer the call because you're going to have people coming and asking for the car- ice caramel macchiatos and mm-hmm. you have to be there to offer them something else or, you know, um, be able to <laughs> uh, uh, kind of bend with it. So, yeah, I, I think those are my two biggest things for at least the next five to six years. Yeah. But it, I, and then the last thing, we, which we already mentioned, is I think the wholesale roasters, and this is like where I think about a lot of the time in, in terms of folly as a business, is it's going to be the non coffee things you can offer that are going to determine mm. the success of your business. Yeah. And with that being said, that the quality of the coffee is still the number one focus, yeah. but it's going to be all the non coffee things that you do as a business that are going to determine your long term success. Totally. And I think that's kind of a hard pill to swallow sometimes <laughs> it's a big leap uh, but again run the numbers if if you have a wholesale customer that's only buying five pounds a week and but they want you to buy brewers for them and and all, all kinds of stuff does that make sense mm. and if it doesn't make sense then don't do it yeah. do, do what makes sense I guess. yeah and even like outside of equipment it's the educational standpoint mm-hmm. it's the customer experience it's training totally. it's what other products do you offer like the customer that we didn't get because of tea well do i yeah. want to start sourcing tea and launch that or do i want to start buying tea from somebody and selling that and all of a sudden am i am i starting a distributor business on a mini scale exactly but it's those decisions that you go is this good for the business is it bad is that help us is it going to hinder us Mm -hmm. and like yeah (laughs) too much to think about (laughs) but Awesome to have you in. Yeah, man. Thanks. <laughs> like, like, I got to see you. And uh, I'll end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day.